children haven't left yet for Children's Church, this is your cue. You can head out. The rest of you can have your Bibles open to Psalm 25. We'll be looking at it in a moment. Let me, um, let me pray and look to him for guidance this morning as we come around his word. Lord, we need you to guide us through this passage. Certainly have done that this past week in, in my heart. And I pray that in a jam-packed psalm, that there would be um, something that we can come away with from this passage this morning. Guide us into your truth. Speak to our hearts clearly that we would know what it is that you want us to hear, corporate level and on an individual basis, and that we would trust you, we would obey you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A national magazine assigned a photographer to take pictures of a forest fire. All they told him was that there'd be a small plane that would be waiting at the airport to fly him over the fire. The photographer arrived at the airstrip, and sure enough, a small Cessna airplane stood waiting there. So this photographer jumped in the airplane with his equipment and shouted, Let's go! The pilot, a Tense-looking man turned the plane into the wind, and soon they were in the air, though flying erratically. Fly over the north side of the fire, said the photographer, and and make several low-level passes. Why, asked the nervous pilot. Because I'm taking pictures, yelled the photographer. I'm a photographer, and photographer take pictures. The pilot replied, Oh, you mean you're not the flight instructor? (laughs) It's important, critical even, that as we make our way through life to know who's in the seat next to us. It is important that our trust is in someone who can actually help us. Who is your instructor? Who are you taking instructions from? We all need a guide as we travel along this difficult journey. And that is what I want us to look at this morning. We are making our way through selected psalms for a sample of seeing a God who is greater than whatever we encounter in life. The psalms provides us with with real help for real problems. This morning in Psalm 25... We find some encouragement in the truth that God is greater than the difficult journey that we can't make by ourselves. God is greater than the difficult journey we can't make by ourselves. And the psalmist who wrote Psalm 25 really brings us on a roller coaster experience. We, we hear of his trust in, his, in the Lord, and, and then some of his doubts surface, and then there's some inner turmoil. But in the end, we find the writer of this psalm back on track. The most beautiful thing about this psalm is not only that he lets us in on, the, on his honest processing of what he is feeling about the troubles that surround him, But the beautiful thing about this psalm is that he knows where to turn in the face of trouble. 
Now, one thing worth noting before we dive into this psalm is its, is its structure. It really isn't an easy structure to outline, but it does have a structure that I believe is intentional. The psalm is set up as an acrostic. And what I mean by that is, is that the psalmist makes his way through the Hebrew alp- alphabet with each verse beginning with the next letter of the alphabet. Now, there are some irregularities in this pattern, but the writer's intent seems to be that his trust is in his God who guides him from beginning to the end, A to Z. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, God's Guidance, A to Z. In other words, in every situation in life, God can be trusted to guide us through. And we all long for God's guidance, don't we? Well, what's encouraging about this psalm is the brutal honesty of David who shares his troubles in life. Psalm 25 really is a personal lament. In this one psalm, we find David struggling with fear and with guilt and with loneliness and with confusion. He encounters trouble both from the outside and from within. David does not deny himself expression of tears and lament, but rather David works through his grief and pain in part by expressing it from A to Z. And what does he find? That the hand of God is guiding him through the entire process. He discovers that God will walk with him through each step of his difficult journey, as he will do with us as well. As we, as we just heard, from beginning to the end, I can trust in you. From the beginning to the end, I can trust in you. A to Z. Now this tool in the toolbox of Psalms is to be picked up by those who, like David in Psalm 25, are unsure about the will of God in certain situations, yet who with all your heart and mind want to know God's ways and his paths. This is a psalm. For those who desire to trust his direction through all matters of life from A to Z. Now, if that isn't you this morning, then I would urge you to consider the reasonableness of trusting in your wisdom above the wisdom of God. Look with me at Psalm 25. Every line in this psalm urges us to work through our difficult journey by expressing it from A to Z, and we'll discover that God will, in fact, guide us every step of the way. God doesn't hide his guidance from us. And there are three times in particular that I want to draw out where we really sense a need for his guidance. Three areas, three times in particular. First of all, he will guide us when the trouble we face is from without. He will guide us when those times when the trouble we face is from without. David begins Psalm 25, verse 1, by saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Now the words, to you and in you, are placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. As we'll see in a moment, David is encountering trouble from without. What do you do? What do you do when trouble hits? Well, someone said it this way. When in charge, ponder. When in trouble, delegate. 
when in doubt, mumble. (laughs) Not bad advice. Well, David knew what to do when in trouble. There was no doubt in his mind where to take his grief. He's not mumbling here at all. In the midst of his personal misery, David is carried upward to God with the whole desire of his heart. As Warren Worsby puts it, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. David knows where to go with his troubles. What's troubling David? Well, he lets us in on it in verse 2. He says, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. You see, this is getting real personal for David. David could put faces on these enemies. They were making his life miserable. Shame would come if his enemies were to succeed in their efforts. David is troubled because his life is in danger, or at the very least, his reputation could be compromised. See, we can trust God with taking care of our reputation, especially as it would in any way dishonor his name. Because he says here in verse 3, No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Just when evil seems to be getting the best of you, and you feel you're kind of on the losing side, remember, God will have the final word. Success of evil is only temporary. See David's affirmation of faith? No one whose hope is in you will be put to shame. No one. No one. Out of these bleak circumstances emerges hope. God is our hope and stay. I ask, what enemies confront you right now? Oh, they they may be faceless, yet their voice of triumph can be heard loud and clear. Perhaps, perhaps your enemy this morning is the enemy of fear. Perhaps your enemy this morning is the enemy of the unknown. Or it's the enemy of, of shame in your life. Or perhaps it's the enemy of doubt or, or the enemy of worry. And all that just kind of seems to be gaining in on you right now. It seems to have some victory on you. Oh, perhaps you're, you're here this morning and you're even concerned about what others might say about you that would call your integrity into question. Where do you go with that? Go into self-protection mode? Get into some spitting match with with some skunk-like personality? How's that going to turn out for you? Maybe what you should do is get on the offense a little bit and and hurt them before they hurt you or hurt you anymore. Maybe maybe that's what what you think, how you're being led. Listen, God will never lead us there. He'll never lead us there. If that or something else like it is where you think you're being led, listen, that is not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. It's something else leading you. Where are you taking your instructions from? When the stress and trouble we are under gets real personal and we start to lose some objectivity, that we need some guidance outside of ourselves. And David cries out to God for wisdom as he makes his decisions. Look at verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. You see David's heart for God. Show me. Guide me. Teach me. 
The psalmist here that we can really learn from has a remarkable desire to conform to God and his ways. Show me your ways, David says. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. And I stopped right here and I said, Brian, is this the cry of your heart? Is this the cry of our hearts? Because whatever may be troubling you right now, whatever circumstance from the outside has invaded your life, are you willing to say, Lord, show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Because God's guidance isn't about getting your own way, but going his way. And if you're honest, there are times we come to the Lord secretly hoping that he will simply endorse our plans and go along with what it is we really want to do. There was an old Scottish woman who went from home to home across the countryside selling thread buttons and shoestrings. And she had this little method of trying to find out which way she was supposed to go and what God's will was for her life is that whenever she came to an unmarked crossroad, she would toss a stick in the air and then, and then go in the direction that the stick pointed when it landed. Now, one day, however, she was seen tossing the stick up in the air several times. Someone asked her, why do you toss the stick more than once? She said, well, because it keeps pointing to the left, and I want to take the road to the right. And she then dutifully kept throwing the stick into the air until it pointed to the way that she wanted to go. I mean, can you relate to that? Are you showing me this? Let's try this again. I'll look for another sign. It's still going that way? Well, let me ask somebody's counsel. Still? Well, I'll try something else. I want to go that way. Right? Can you relate to that? I can't. That's not David's heart. It's not the heart of one who is after the heart of God. I mean, isn't it amazing how stubborn we can be in holding on to doing things our way? And doesn't it really come down to, to, to just having a lack of trust in God? All too often we function in me, I trust. So we try to control the outcome, and we manipulate decisions, and we we get all bent out of shape when things don't go our own way. And as we face each day, each pressing decision, each trial in life, there are two ways we can go. We can go God's way, we can go our own way. And you can keep tossing that stick in the air if you want to. God's way, our way. What does that require of us? It requires that we remain teachable. Show me. Teach me. Guide me. On a scale of 1 to 10, how teachable are you right now? On a scale of 1 to 10. Because the stronger our grasp on what we want, the less in tune we are to God's leading. How open are you to seeing God's will and truly giving him his rightful place of leading and directing your life? You see, too many are content and satisfied to call themselves Christians with little or no thought of following him. 
Instead, we, we really ought to pray as one man in the Congo prayed, Lord, you be the needle and I'll be the thread. You go first and I'll follow wherever you lead. We ought to receive God's guidance that we're just so longing for. There must be an openness to God and his ways. The guidance we need throughout our difficult journey is found in these words. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Will you pray that? Will you get up tomorrow morning and say, that's what I'm going to pray. The big decision you're facing, that's what I'm going to pray right there. I'm going to take it with me through the day. That's how I'm going to pray. He'll answer that prayer. We can count on him to guide us when the trouble we face is from the outside. Secondly, we can count on him to guide us when the trouble we face is from within. From within. You see, it's often in times of pressures and troubles that some soul searching is close by. When there is trouble from the outside and from without, it's cause to look within. We really ought to do that. I need to do that in my life. When things come in, come at me, maybe even enemies come at me, I need to stop and say, maybe they, they missed the bullseye, but did they hit the target? Do I need to stop and then say, search me, Lord? In verse 6, psalmist says, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love. In verse 7, he's so mindful of his sin and personal weaknesses. He says, remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. He continues in verse 7, he says, according to your love, remember me. Look down in verse 11, David says, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And at the end of verse 18, end of verse 18, he asks the Lord, take away all my sins. What is David asking? That God would not hold the sin against him. And the grounds for forgiveness are wrapped up in the unending mercy and love of God. It's based on the one fact that God is good, as the end of verse 7 says. And so as we think about God's guidance through our difficult journey, we might figure that we're disqualified to receive any instruction from him because we know ourselves all too well and we remember our sin before him. We say, I have no business asking God to give me any guidance because of my past. And just when you start to get overwhelmed by your sin, just when you you get to that breaking point, find this relief directly from heaven, God's loyal love and mercy and goodness never come to an end. Never. Now that's something to which you can fasten your hope. You see, facing the truth about ourselves might make us miserable, at least for a bit, as we see, as we, as we acknowledge the ugliness of sin, but it is right there we can know the joy of his forgiveness where God extends his grace and love to us as if the sin had never taken place. I will remember it no more, God says in Psalm 103. You keep calling it up after you've repented and confessed that sin, that is not God reminding you. I can safely say. Like Corey Tim Boom loved to say, when I confess my sins to the Father, Jesus Christ washed them in his blood. They are now cast into the deepest sea, and a sign is put up that says, no fishing allowed. I love that. 
God has done something about our sin. He's cast it in the deepest sea. He's put up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Why do we keep fishing for it? Now, forgiveness is not an end in itself. He wants to guide your life. He says here in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. We all qualify. What does it take for a person to receive that instruction? A humble heart. For verse 9 says, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Do you hear what this is saying? We all sin frequently and repeatedly. But the difference between one who receives God's instruction and is able to get back on track with God and the person who continues in a sinful way is a matter of what a person does when he sins. The difference, for example, between the sin of King Saul and the sin of King David was not the nature of the sin as much as it was what a person after God's own heart did after he sinned. And when he was confronted and what a person did not do and how he responded when he was confronted. Now we're going to come back to this and what we'll see next week in Psalm in Psalm 51, the point to be made right here is the joy in knowing what to do with our sins. The power of owning up and accepting the forgiveness of the Lord, it is there that God's instructions and guidance can put us on the right path again. So when you're in that place of absolute brokenness before God, and I believe there's a perpetual brokenness we all ought to be at, God will walk you through it and lead you to the path of life. As you see the trouble on the inside, God's guidance will show up there and lead you on what is right if you ask him for it. I need to get to the third one. He will guide us not only when there's troubles from the outside and troubles from within. He will guide us when troubles seem to get worse, not better. He will guide us when troubles seem to get worse, not better. Verse 16 exposes David's dark night of the soul He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Why? For I am lonely and afflicted. I ask you, is there anything worse than an incredible sense that you have no one to share your trouble with? When when trouble strikes, those same friends who were with you for dinner seem to disappear in the battle. Reminded of the story told of Dwight Eisenhower. He was in charge of the massive war effort to release Europe from the tyranny of the Nazi regime. General Eisenhower orchestrated Operation Overlord and got the fractious allies moving in the same direction. He even tamed the British generals, which was no easy task. The day was set, the tides were right, but the weather was all wrong. And Eisenhower was the only person who could make the decision. A Royal Air Force meteorologist predicted a break in the weather, so Eisenhower gave the go-ahead to march on in. And yet all the generals and the admirals and the vice marshals who had been there in the room, once Eisenhower made that decision, they all promptly left Eisenhower alone. There he was, all by himself, just giving an order to go ahead. And he had nothing there to do. Is this going to be a success? Is this going to be a complete failure? And he sat down, and he wrote a news release in advance. 
he announced that the operation had succeeded, and he thanked everyone who had participated. There hadn't been even one yet, and he already wrote that news release. What many people don't know is that Eisenhower, at the same time, wrote a second news release. And that one, he explained why the operation had failed and accepted full responsibility himself. Can you imagine the loneliness and inner turmoil of General Eisenhower at that moment? Gave the order. Would it be victory? Would it be defeat? None of us can quite share the position Dwight Eisenhower was in on D-Day. We may never know that kind of loneliness, but we understand loneliness. We can relate to the feeling of of being called into the boss's office, thinking you're going to be offered a raise, and instead he lets you go. Loneliness. We know the feeling just before surgery, when everybody is left and we're there all alone. You may know the lonely feeling of being served divorce papers or being dumped, or or the empty feeling of of being left out at some gathering, or, or the inner turmoil and loneliness of a marriage void of all intimacy. Now, the only thing lonelier would be the feeling that you could only talk to yourself about your troubles. I say, will you cry out to him, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Things seem quite desperate for David as he cries out in verse 17. It gets worse. He says, the troubles of my heart have multiplied. Literally, it says, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. He adds, free me from my anguish. In verse 19, he speaks of enemies increasing. There's a greater emotional intensity at this point than earlier in the psalm regarding his enemies. He now says of his enemies, see how fiercely they hate me. It's gone from bad to worse. And when troubles multiply, they will either break us or make us. They will either crush us or grow us. We'll either become bitter or better. In times like these, we begin to ask, why is this happening to me? Is all this really necessary? Will it ever end? How long? Oh, Lord, how long? Desperate times call for a desperate crying out to God for help. What we discover about David from this psalm is that in every situation, he prays. He asks God to guard his life. He asks God to turn to him and be gracious. He asks God to release his feet from the snare, and that he's the only one who can do it. He asks God to take away his uncertainty and make known to him God's ways. He asks God to lead him in truth. This psalm is just filled with one petition after another. Matter of fact, there are at least 18 petitions and 22 verses. He comes to God In an attitude of submission and anticipation, he's troubled and he takes it to the Lord because he doesn't know which way to turn. At a 1999 conference in Houston, Speaker Marty Ensign, a missionary to Africa, told of of bringing some African pastors to the United States for a big meeting. And during their free time, these African pastors wanted to go shopping. And even though they were in a small city, Marty knew there was a great chance that someone might have difficulty or they'll just get lost. 
And so she gave them her phone number for such an emergency. And in less than an hour, the phone rang. And the African, one of the African pastors said, I am lost. Marty said, well, I'll tell you what. Go to the nearest street corner. Find out the names of the two streets at that corner and tell me what the names of the street uh, the streets are at that corner, and I'll come, in, come in and get you. When a f- in a few minutes, he, he walked over to the corner. He went to the phone, back to the phone conversation, and he said this, I am at the corner of walk and don't walk. <laughs> Not very helpful. You know, sometimes as we seek to know God and his leading of us, we feel we're at that same corner. Don't walk, walk. Don't walk, walk. Which is it? What do I do? Give me a sign. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way. She says, sometimes we come to God confident and we think well-informed and well-equipped. But has it occurred to us that with all our accumulation of stuff, something is missing? We often ask God for too little. We know what we need, a yes or a no answer to a simple question. Or perhaps we, we were looking for a road sign. Something quick and easy just to point the way. What we really ought to have, she says, is the guide himself. Maps, road signs, a few useful phrases are things, but infinitely better is someone who has been there before and knows the way. God himself. He wants to be in the seat next to you and instruct you in his ways. God will guide us when there's trouble from without. God will guide us when there's trouble from within. God will try, c- guide us when troubles seem to get worse, not better. The million-dollar question is how. How does he guide us? How does God answer the prayer for guidance when you face a decision and there's no biblical command relating directly to it? How does Psalm 25 speak to that? Now, there's a real gem here that I don't want us to miss. Look at verse 14. I absolutely love verse 14. It says, this is the how. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The Lord confides in those who fear him. That could be translated, by the way, the secrets of Yahweh. Words of intimacy, the inner circle. What is this verse getting at? As we're seeking to follow him, there is a way in which God guides our hearts and our minds. He confides in us so that we are in harmony with God's hearts. You can call it spiritual sensitivity. You can call it spiritual awareness. You can call it spiritual discernment or godly intuition. But it is the ability to see the the relevant factors that relate to the decision that we're about to make. Even when we pray, as David prayed earlier, guide me in your truth and teach me, we are really asking that God create in us a spiritual and moral conformity to himself and his will. And God teaches us how by opening our eyes 
to see the significant facts of the situation and by giving us the ability to see the relevant factors related to the decision to be made. He confides in us. The condition upon which one can enjoy this intimacy with God is what? To fear him. Verse says he will confide in those who fear him. He'll give direction to those who fear him. The dread and and terror that one might feel as a result of our sinfulness as we look within before a holy God is to be replaced with a fear that has to do with reverent submission that leads to obedience. To fear God is to rely on and trust in Him. For believers, we are not to be driven by terror fear, but worship fear. It is a fear that draws us closer to him rather than cause us to flee and hide from him. And like David here, for those who fear dishonoring his name, he promises a spiritual depth of knowing his will. He confides in those who fear him. We believe that. Oh, we must be living true to God's word and what we know to be his will. God has given us his guidance right here. This is how we can live our days for him. There's a known will to be carried out consistently. And if you aren't interested in following his known will, then can we expect that we can be sensitive to other areas needing his guidance? The answer is an obvious no. That's how we do it sometimes. I have no interest in this, but God, show me. Doesn't promise to show you. Doesn't. Confides in those who fear him. This is where we need to be. And when we are, he confides in us. He promises that he'll give us a spiritual sensitivity of the factors that relate to our decision. This is why towards the end of the psalm, verse 21, I can't miss it. David says, may integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. He's after that. The point to be made is that while we might be waiting for God's guidance in some particular area of our life, Questions are we committing ourselves to integrity and uprightness? What the psalm reveals to us God's highest priority is bringing us along to the troubles we may encounter through our difficult journey to a place of complete trust in Him and shaping our lives to greater conformity to Him and His will. That's what this is all about. God guides us to and through tough times because he wants to do a work in us. In a Leadership Journal article, John Ortberg creates this scenario. He says, imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. And you read in the script that she'll have a learning disability in elementary school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she'll make a great circle of friends, the script says, and then it says that one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she will get into her preferred college, but while there, she'll lose a leg in a car accident. 
Following that, she'll go through a time of depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job and then lose that job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, the script says, but then go through a grief of separation. With this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Wouldn't you want to just take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? Oh, if you could erase every failure and disappointment, a period of suffering, I ask you, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow in the best, into the best version of themselves? Is it possible? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crises and trauma, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures and disappointments and periods of suffering to help us grow. And Ortberg then says this, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. Whatever comes our way, God can be trusted. He has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for this church. He is producing the church. He is producing the me he wants. His plan, loved ones, is the very best for us, for he is good and upright, even though we'd like to take an eraser and erase things. His plan is good and upright, for he is that. This is our confidence right here. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what to add to what we just read in Psalm 25. I just pray that this would be a real confidence builder for this church, for my life, for our lives. As you produce in us the church you want, the me that you want. Maybe not fight that, but instead I pray that we would trust and obey you under all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.